Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. It is time for another Friday conversation. We recorded this a couple of weeks ago, actually, on a Friday. Um, but today is when you hear this, it's going to be the 30th of December. And I hope you had an amazing Christmas. Uh, we had a cold, cold week leading up to Christmas, a minus 15, 20 degrees below zero, 45 under zero wind chills. It was a crazy time, but it was warmer on Christmas Day, and, and I just pray that you and your family are well. Um, we've had just some incredible people on the podcast for these Friday conversations, and today is no exception. Lisa and I were in A to Z Books, a used bookstore in North Platte, Nebraska, with Tata one Saturday a few months ago, and Lisa kind of uh, drew in her breath and said, wow, this is Jay Wellens. And I said, Jay Wellens, what do you mean? And she held up a book. And my friend Jay Wellens, who's a pediatric neurosurgeon that we knew from our time back in Auburn when he was at the University of Alabama, has written a book. And it's uh, there on the shelf in A to Z Books in North Platte. Shocking that we found his book and didn't know he was a writer. But it turns out Jay uh, is an incredible writer. He's written for the New York Times and has, has uh, trained as a writer at Ole Miss when he was a college student. I had no idea that he was writing books. And he has written a memoir, All That Moves Us, a pediatric neurosurgeon, his young patients, and their stories of grace and resilience. And Jay's the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Vanderbilt, and he's one of the leading fetal surgeons in the United States and really in the world. Um, fetal surgery, of course, is the ability that we have now uh, through the incredible advances in obstetrics and neurosurgery and anesthesia and cardiac care to open the womb and operate on babies before they're born and then let them complete the pregnancy when they have birth defects like spina bifida that could be uh, improved and has been shown now to be significantly improved outcomes by having fetal surgery. So Jay's this incredible guy. Uh, he's very kind to me when I was a uh, surgeon there in Alabama. We sent patients to them when we had a, a kid that was really sick that we couldn't take care of in Auburn for some reason, or several times I had emergency surgeries I had to perform on young children, and we didn't have a pediatric ICU, so we would try to stabilize the child and then fly them to UAB, and, and Jay would take care of them. And uh, he invited me down to Florida one year for the Alabama Neurosurgical Society meeting, and then later to Birmingham as an honored uh, keynote speaker for the Galbraith Lecture at UAB, which was a huge honor for me, one of the highlights of my career actually getting to talk to the residents and the faculty there at, at uh, UAB and uh, Jay's just been a good friend and, and a good colleague over the years and we kind of lost touch I moved to Wyoming and he moved to Tennessee and hadn't talked to him in years and there I was reading his book and it turns out to be an incredible story of what pediatric neurosurgery is and the, and the hero the sort of heroism of these young patients and their families and all they go through when they're facing neurological illness and nerve injuries and brain tumors and, and Jay just did a wonderful job of showing the human side of this incredibly delicate profession that he's in. and um, It was an incredible honor to sit down and talk to Jay for 30 or 45 minutes, and I just can't wait to introduce you to him. We're going to give away two copies of his book. The first two listeners who write in, Lee at DrLeeWarren.com, please your name and your mailing address, and we will get you a copy of Jay's book. The publicist at Penguin uh, has graciously agreed to send out a couple of books. So, um, And these go away really fast, uh, friend. They Usually within 30 or 45 minutes of the episode airing, they're gone. So get after it. If you are interested in Jay's book and you would like a free copy, get after it quickly when you hear this episode. Lee at Dr. Lee Warren is the email. Lee at DrLeeWarren.com is the email. So I'm excited to introduce you to my friend Jay Wellens. He is an incredible guy, brilliant scholar, um, 
just a, a wonderful conversation, and I think it's going to bless you. And I hope that uh, you find something in this conversation and in his book that will be helpful to you and inspiring to you like it has been for me. Listen, you can't change your life until you change your mind. Jay's going to give you some stories that might change your mind about what it means to deal with, with illness and adversity and meet it and face it with grace and resilience. And as always, Lisa's going to tell us first that we can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you'd like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Well, friend, we're back, and I am so excited to introduce you to an old friend of mine, a first-time guest on the podcast, a brilliant writer and pediatric neurosurgeon, Dr. Jay Wellens. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you, Lee. I'm so excited to be here. And it's also great to catch back up with you. It's been way it's, too long, man. It's been a long time. You were at UAB in Birmingham when I was in Auburn and um, saved some kids' lives that I sent to you and uh, just always appreciated getting to work with you. And, and, uh, and good to see your face, man. Gotcha. And we had, we had some good times at the old Neurosurgery Society of Alabama meeting, I remember. And yeah. Uh, and Galbraith and all that good stuff. So Yeah, that was a great honor. Still one of the greatest honors of my career. You invited me to come up and give the Galbraith lecture at UAB and talk about my time in Iraq. And that, that was a, I don't know if I ever properly thanked you for that. It was a big honor for me. Thank you. Well, you know, we should be, we should be thanking you because the what you did then and, and uh, the service that, you know, all of our physician and medical personnel in the military, I mean, that's a huge deal. As you know, as you know, we'll talk about what my dad was, in the Air National Guard for many, many years, and he—that uh, was an important part of his life, incredibly important. So, yeah. So, thank you for coming and talking to us all those years. Yeah, that was awesome. Hey, listen, you—you you, like me as a neurosurgeon, you deal with some delicate and hard things, and I think you came to at some point in your life expressing some of those emotional traumas almost that you face through writing. Like talk to me for a second about how you came to write and, and, and what this journey was for you about becoming a writer who also is a, is a neurosurgeon. That's not a very common thing that a few of us have it. Well, um, I mean, my, my way back background is that I was an English major at the university of Mississippi at the center for Southern writing. And so I had the opportunity at the time to be taught by some really incredible Southern writers Barry Hanna's one, Ellen Douglas is the other. And so I had this kind of crazy concept that um, I was going to go to medical school and be um, a primary care doctor and go back to South Mississippi and, you know, be a important part of my, you know, community and get paid in chickens and produce and 
you know, around in the nursing home and deliver the babies and, you know, all of it. And I just, uh, and I thought that I would through that kind of learn the human condition and be able to write about it at some point uh, in my career. And so that, so it, it, it was kind of seeded back then. Um, but then, uh, you know, you get in the anatomy lab and you see the brachial plexus and the, the beautiful, the beauty of the brain. And you, you start working with people that you can try to help pull over the edge. And I mean, you know, the, you know, the, the siren call and all of a sudden you, you lay that down, you lay your, your other dream down at the altar of, you know, neurosurgery and then you move into this new world. And so, you know, I mean, just for years and years and years, like you, you just experience it. Uh, and, um, I have a, um, kind of existential threat, so to speak, uh, that basically took me from, uh, you know, warp nine to bed rest. And it was, a I had a, a tumor in the in my, kind of top of my leg at Elvis. And I was, you know, program director and vice chair of this and head of this research and head of the director, I mean, head of the division and all these things. And all of a sudden you go from warp nine to, uh, to bed rest. And, uh, you're like, what yeah. do I do? Yeah. So it was, um, you know, after we were fortunate enough for it not to be, a, you know, a malignant situation, it was resected, but I did kind of have to learn how to walk again and I did, had to get everything to heal up. And so there's only so much Netflix you can watch, you know, I mean, there's really, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was my sister, Sarah, um, who I call the ultimate enabler. I mean that in a good sense. Yeah. <laughs> She's the one that said, you know, all these stories that you've been telling us, you got to start writing these things down. And I come from a family of storytellers. I mean, most people in Mississippi are storytellers, honestly, you know, uh, a hello in less than five minutes. Um, but, <laughs> um, but that's what I did. So that's, that's kind of how it all started. Uh, you know, that's another thing we have in common. I'm from a town in Oklahoma of 2000 people. And I thought I was going to be a family practice doctor too. And, and what happened to me was I got to third year of medical school and my first rotation was family practice and I hated it. Like I couldn't keep my attention span long enough to let Mrs. Jones tell me about her diabetes for 30 years. You know, it was just too much. I remember, uh, I remember those rotations too. I, I, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's what I saw in my hometown, you know, and I think um, my, my father really wanted me to be a doctor. He had wanted to be a doctor. Uh, so I had to go through kind of that. I want to do this because I want to do it, not because somebody else wants me to do it. That was one of the most important things because I didn't want to commit myself to a life of something that somebody else wanted me to do, you know. Um, and I had this, um, <laughs> uh, you know, as a uh, tie-dye t-shirt wearing, Birkenstock wearing, long hair having, junior in college, I decided that there were there were three basic states of man. There was the physical, the mental slash educational, and the spiritual. And that there was something that catered to each of those three basic states of man. The physical was a physician, the mental slash educational, I kind of figured as a teacher, and then the spiritual was a priest. Um, and so, uh, you know, I just felt like that, that uh, being able to put myself in, I decided the physical, but what's really cool is that it ends up when you're, um, you know, in academic medicine is that not only are you able to help take care of people, but then you're also teaching as a big part of your, you know, of your existences too. Uh, So, um, so 
believe it or not, I can't believe that I'm still quoting my 20 year old self. <laughs> you know, if I'd have told my 20 year old self that as a 53 year old man, I'd be still quoting myself. It'd be like, no way, man. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully you'll be a lot smarter by then, dude. You know? That's right. I neglected to give our listeners the name of the, the title of your book, All That Moved Us, A Pediatric Neurosurgeon, His Young Patients, and Their Stories of Grace and Resilience by Jay Wellens. I want to just tell you the story of how I came to even find out. Like I said, we, we, we've known each other a long time, but we haven't been in touch with each other for a while. And I was in A to Z bookstore in North Platte, Nebraska, which is a mostly used bookstore. Shout out to those guys. I think they listen to the podcast. And Lisa, my wife, said, hey, I think I know this guy. Isn't this the same Jay Wellens that we know? And I was like, my goodness, it is. And so that's how we found out about your book. It was in A to Z bookstore in North Platte, Nebraska. Awesome. That's awesome. I love that. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm honored. So if, if anybody from A to Z is listening, I just want to thank you so much for having my book in your bookstore so that Lee and I can read it. We'll, we'll get you a signed copy if you guys are listening. And by the way, speaking of copies, so your publicist uh, from Penguin Random House has graciously agreed to give two copies of the book away. The first two listeners that send me an email, lee at drleewarren.com, lee at drleewarren.com, tell me your name and your mailing address. The first two listeners that write in will get a copy from the publisher of Jay's book. It's tremendous. And I want to give you just a little overview of the book because it's not just a, a bunch of stories about neurosurgery. That would be kind of boring unless you really we're into neurosurgery, but it's it's a collection of stories that tell a story of of grace and resilience and and the power of healing and the power of faith. And, and Jay, you just did a wonderful job of weaving in your your personal journey and your dad in the military and flying and and all these things. And I'm going to read you two little short clips, and I just want to hear your take on kind of what you think when you hear your own words coming back at you. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, love it. Okay, so this is from the from the introduction. You said, it is not a surprise that we are all fragile, none more so than the littlest among us. The dark and unknown that we all face make us more so, but life wants to live, and I have learned that we are also extraordinarily resilient. I most often feel that operating on them has had the effect of making me more essentially human, that as much as I have healed, I have been healed. Yeah. It's true. I mean, I really, I'm just going through the cycle of, um, you know, kind of how grief and joy are linked together so intricately, you know, almost like inseparable twins, you know, and it's the, you know, the, the grief that comes around the, um, the diagnosis of a neurosurgical problem or the fact that your child has a brain tumor or your child has a head injury or your child has a, you know, an AVM or a blood vessel malformation. And then, and then there's the the joy that comes with, you know, hopefully the recovery, you know, the, the successful surgery. Um, but, you know, it's this conversation that that you have had, that neurosurgeons have, you know, that, that surgeons that deal with serious things have had with families, and you you know that, and you hope and you pray that you want it to move from this conversation as they move through this whole process to this community that they have, you know, and it's a community that I think is shown through their family, through their friends and through what you can provide by caring for them. And, you know, not just their neurosurgical issue, but their whole self too, as, as much as we're called to do that, which I think we are called to do that. 
So, um, so I personally, you know, I mean, I, you know, uh, talked a little bit about my dad. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he passed away when I was an intern or between my intern and junior, junior residency years. And, you know, I, I would just kind of put my head back down in the work. And I think what I've really seen over the years is myself and the families of these folks that I've taken care of and these kids. And it's really taught me a lot about grief and a lot about how to, how to manage grief and that we are really, you know, it's the children and it's also their families that are capable of this kind of resilience and grace. So I, I am really, really grateful for, you know, the opportunity to help, help these people, but I have, I've also really been helped. I mean, I also really have been healed in a lot of ways by doing this work. I, I know that you feel the same way. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your, your most recent book, yeah. you know, I've seen the end of you. I mean, I, I read that and yeah. it's a terrific book. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, it is what we struggle with. It's the malignant brain tumor. You know, it's the, it's the, Thank you. I know what I think is going to happen, but I want so desperately much for it not to be, you know, you said something else towards the end of the book. In neurosurgery, we walk with our patients and learn profound lessons from them along the way. But the realization that we are all fragile, that our lives can turn in a moment, is a constant for all of us, regardless of our path in life. That's that's what you're getting at there. We're none of us are immune to these things that come along, are we? That's right. And you know, we can live as we can live an extremely good life. You know, we can feel like that we've done our job to God and country. And at the end of the day, we're not immune from the diagnosis of a tumor or cancer or any of those things that affect the rest of us. And it's because, you know, whatever your theological construct is or is not, not you personally, but, you know, you in general, you you know, I I think we're fallen. And, you know, whether we're spiritually fallen, you know, that's just how we are. Or the we're, we're flawed as a species, however you want to think about it. They're just... Yeah, we're just not immune to suffering. And, you know, you can you can go deep into suffering, the concept of suffering to the to the Buddhist or the Christian mystics. And you can think about how, you know, suffering is is actually a, a way of learning or suffering is a way of becoming stronger or, you know, however you want to think through it. But the reality of it is, is that suffering is a part of life. And it doesn't matter if we live this great life where we help a bunch of people where it can still happen to us or the people that we love. That's right. And we all have a responsibility to acknowledge that in others and, and help them through it, whether we're the surgeon or the patient. You tell some beautiful stories of how the patients have helped you and, and, and it helped you heal in different ways. And I just think it's whether you're a plumber or a brain surgeon or whatever you do, you have a responsibility to the, to the guy next to you when we're hurting. And you, you just told some beautiful stories like that. I just I did have this uh, this one particular patient named Hannah and Hannah had a tumor in her basal ganglia. And she, she nicknamed it little devil. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and she, you know, had some difficulties after surgery and she's gradually gotten over it. And she's, you know, an amazing young woman just graduated from college. But, but when I was going through my own issue, I I also decided based on what Hannah did, I decided to nickname my own tumor. Uh, and I nicknamed it, I nicknamed it Wormwood after the character in screw tape letters and the screw screw tape letters. Because the you know Wormwood's job was to bring about the fall of mankind, yeah. and I was like, Wormwood is not going to win. You know, what I, mean? I love that. <laughs> That's great. 
So that was all because of Hannah. Yeah. Amazing. We all have that one patient that stands out that was because of their humor, or their personality or whatever we remember something. I just picked up a pizza earlier today. I went to get lunch for me and my father-in-law. Lisa's out of town shopping and getting things for the kids for Christmas. And, and I went to pick up a pizza and the woman there I didn't recognize from the restaurant. And she said, you're Dr. Warren. And I said, yeah. And she said, you did my neck surgery two years ago. And, and I'd done so great. I'm glad she didn't say like, I can't move my arms or, you know, so you see somebody out in public and you don't first recognize them. But we, it was just amazing to, to think about in this small town, like how, how we just all relate to one another. And it's not in the operating room. It's in the pizza shop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Lee, I have to tell you, I had an amazing thing happen uh, on Wednesday. And that is I, uh, was contacted by a now adult who I did a Chiari decompression on who uh, did yeah. well as a, as a child. He was, he was 10 when I saw him and uh, he and his wife needed to have a fetal consult done and everything ended up being fine. But um, the opportunity for me to see him literally 15 years later, you know, he's 25, 26. Wow. Um, that was amazing, you know, and, to look at his face and be like, Oh, I can totally see him as that little 10 year old kid that I operate yeah. on. That is, that is, um, that is a wonderful thing to be able to have that connection with our patients. That's right. To enjoy the joy part because the joy part's important. You know? Not just the stress and the, and the delicacy, but the, the human life later. That's, that's amazing. Tell us about how you became a pediatric neurosurgeon, right? So, so there's, there's neurosurgery and we're all these, these alpha males and, and alpha women and, and these strong personalities. And, and then there's a subset of us, very small subset of us that choose to apply that training and, and specialty to the smallest and weakest and most vulnerable among us. And you and Jerry Grant and people like that have my highest respect because I, I don't know if I could do the work that you do, brother. Like talk about how, how'd you get there? Well, for me, um, you know, I had um, in medical school in Mississippi, I had a wonderful mentor, um, Dr. Richard Miller. He was a pediatric surgeon, pediatric general surgeon. Um, uh, and that, that I didn't feel called to go into pediatric general surgery, but I really felt like the role that he played for the, I mean, he was the only pediatric surgeon in the state of Mississippi. Wow. You know, think about that for a minute. And so the role that he played was just so important to our entire state. And, um, and I liked the way that he interacted with children and the way he interacted with, with the parents too, with respect, you know, um, not condescending. And so then I got into, to, into neurosurgery at, at Duke and, uh, you know, you rotate through the different specialties. And uh, I realized I really felt called to yeah. take care of kids. You know, I, I had a wonderful, you know, I had this concept I call bucket line. So this is a great example. You know, I had this pediatric surgeon mentor, you know, at, um, at Mississippi who kind of, passed me off on the bucket line and then I'm in Duke and then now Tim George, who is my, who, who was my kind of pediatric neurosurgery mentor at Duke, you know, he had such a huge impact on me because I saw how the operations that he did and how technically demanding it was, but how calm, cool and collected he was under pressure and how he made everybody around him better versions yeah. of themselves and how he was able to handle the stress of working on children and how he was inquisitive. And, you know, I just think that a lot of, a lot of my life has been, you know, liking who 
who I am, but also finding people and saying, you know, I don't think I want to be like that person. I like what that person's doing. And so Tim George had a tremendous impact on me as well. Just I felt drawn to the field, but then as you feel drawn and then somebody takes an impact on you, I mean, somebody takes an interest in you, then it's like a positive flywheel. You know, it just all of a sudden before you know it, 25 years later, you've been a pediatric neurosurgeon, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, we all have those those one individual that sees something in us that pushes us to be better. No, I mean it's just those kind of transformative people in our lives that uh, that really. Uh, that's uh, I was fortunate enough to be program director here at Vanderbilt for um, uh, five years, and that was a very meaningful time to be able to have an impact on the residents. And I, st- I still do, but just not in a you know ACGME or a formal role, but. Um, but I am. Um, I, I particularly love that part too, to be able to kind of pass that on. You've got all these. You think about it. You've got your own bucket line, and then you've got all these other bucket lines that are crisscrossing, and it's like this huge tapestry, you know. In reality, yeah, that's amazing. So, of all the stories you tell in your book, Jay, if looking back on your on your career, and and you know, we're in the second or third third of our career now. Probably yeah. we're in the we're in the last half yeah. anyway. And and uh as as you look back on that twenty years or so that you've been practicing of all the stories that you told, I think my favorites were the peripheral nerve stories. I was so moved by some of them as we do, you know, carpal tunnel surgery and ulnar nerve surgery, but most adult neurosurgeons don't do a lot of brachial plexus work and a lot of the things that you have to do as a pediatric neurosurgeon. And you told one story that you called the whole miracle. And uh, I want you to just give us a little bit of sense of that, the boy with the nerve injury. And, and th- that was just a, such a beautiful story. And you tied your dad into it. And it was just just lovely. So just give us a minute of that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, well, so um, so it is really kind of an amazing story. So Leonard uh, was the young boy um, uh, who was kind of the star of the, you know, the point of the story. But he and his father lived in Utah. Yeah. And it was in the the middle of the winter and all of a sudden uh there was a pot belly stove that basically exploded uh they were in the garage trying to stay warm and doing father-son stuff and a big kind of chunk of the stove kind of went directly into his neck and um and had a substantial injury it had a lot of blood and dad held pressure and he somehow got to the er and there in the er in utah they got them to our colleagues at primary children's at utah and they emergently took him to the operating room and they fixed the blood vessel with a graft and you know all of it was so fast and they when Leonard finally woke up they realized he wasn't moving his arm and the likely that he had had an injury to his brachial plexus at the same time and so you know sometimes you can wait it out to see if that injury improves sometimes you go back but because of the because of the grafts they sewed in they, they thought that it was you know best weight and and then they contacted me and that's when I met Leonard so at the time I was in Alabama and so the family flew there a couple of months later and there hadn't been much recovery. And so ultimately, you know, took him to the operating room after this discussion, which was so meaningful. And I'll never forget that, um, you know, I was talking to the dad about surgery and, that you know, he had this arm that wouldn't, the arm didn't work, but his hand and wrist worked, yeah. but he couldn't bend his elbow and he couldn't, he couldn't bring his shoulder arc. So he just kind of had this useless hand. And I said, you know, the goal of this surgery is for us to be able to get his hand up to his mouth, because if he can do that, then it's a it's a useful hand. And then he can play a sport and then he can hold a job and he can be a meaningful member of society if we can just get this reanimated arm. And, um, you know, and 
his family had a, you know, an important uh, theologic construct for them. And they were talking about, you know, having faith that it was going to happen. And ultimately at the end of the day, the dad looked at Leonard and said, you know, it's, it's your arm, you know, what, what do you, what do you want? What do you think? And I'll never forget that Leonard, he reached, he reached around his dad with his good arm and he grabbed his other arm and he pulled it up over his dad and he whispered into his dad's ear and his dad said, Leonard, Leonard wants the whole miracle. <laughs> and so, so we said, okay, we're going for it. And so, you know, we did the surgery where we, uh, you know, took one nerve and sewed it into the other and did it again for the, for one of the other muscles and sewed it into the other's tiny little suture, like the size of human hair under the microscope. And, got it all finished up and they were able to go home and the wound healed up. But it's, you know, as you know, it's not like, it's not like cutting the cord on the light where when you rewire it, you put it black in and, it, and the light comes on. It takes months to see. And so at uh, about the five month mark or something, Leonard came back and uh, I walked in the room and I said, how you doing? And it was his right arm and, he held his left arm up and I was like, come on, Leonard, you got to do <laughs> this, you know, you. hold up the other arm. And he held it up. He held both of them up like a touchdown, wow. you know? And I was like, Oh my gosh. But then he saluted mm. Just He just saluted. That was just what he did. And um, part of that story has to do with my, my dad and his, his diagnosis with Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a kind of a neurodegenerative disorder uh, that ultimately leads to death. And, and so I kind of wove the story in there of how, um, when he first, my dad, my own father had arm weakness and, and how, um, story about how we had, um, you know, kind of flown back and forth a few times for a study, but it was just such a meaningful thing for Leonard to salute me at the end because it was such a moment that reminded me of my dad. Yeah. Um, so it really was the whole miracle for, for both of us all, for all of us, really. That's just a little example of of the powerful storytelling that you did in this book. And and friend, I just can't encourage you highly enough. Jay's just a tremendous writer in the in the the power of these stories to to illustrate resilience and and the this the human spirit is is uh it's remarkable. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. And Jay, I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to be with us here today. Um one more thing. You do something. So not only are you a pediatric neurosurgeon, which is a, a small subset of neurosurgeons, but beyond that, you also do fetal neurosurgery. So you operate on babies that haven't been born yet. And that's a, that's a tiny subset of people. I mean, we're like 12 people on the planet that can do that. So talk about that. Like, how's that come about? And, and tell us maybe a little bit of the, of some of the stories of, of how fetal neurosurgery works. And pe- most people don't know that you can do that and, and that people can survive and be born and all that. So just give us a little bit of that world. Well, it is, um, it is, it's a wondrous thing. I mean, it, uh, every time I do it, I don't, the, the wonder is still there. I mean, I, I have to say, and I've, I've had the opportunity to do it now on and off for, for 10 years. But, um, you know, basically, you know, as you know, kids can be born with something called spina bifida. Spina bifida is yep. where the spine is bifid at the bottom. And so the spinal cord is exposed. And, you know, folks for a long time tried to figure out if there was a way to help improve these children's outcome. And um, there were three main centers that at the all at the same time, UCSF was one, CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia was one, and Vanderbilt was one. And there were all three different teams that were trying to figure out, well, can we close the spinal cord in, in, in utero, you know, in the womb? Can we 
does that make a difference? And it wasn't clear if it made a difference, but then it did make a difference in some, but it didn't in others. And then some of the children were born early, but when they were born, maybe their legs worked a little bit better. Maybe they didn't have some of the other developmental or issues with their spinal fluid in their brain backing up called hydrocephalus. And so ultimately, you know, it was about to be, it was about to explode across our field 20 years ago. I mean, I remember it as a resident, Tim George, my mentor said, Hey, we're going to start a fetal neurosurgery program. I was like, that sounds great. You know, sounds good. And then the next thing was like, actually, no, the, the NIH has, has funded it under the context. I mean, with the restrictions that no other, but the, but the main three centers do it. And so they funded like $26.7 million trial that was randomized between closing the, the back, closing the spinal cord after delivery, which is what's typically done. Uh, and then doing it as a fetus. And the, the, you know, the study was actually halted. And you say, aha, it was halted because there was a problem. And it was like, well, actually it was halted because the results were so strong towards fetal surgery yeah. that, that it would have been unethical to continue the study. And that is really rare, as you know. Yep. And so really Vanderbilt became one of the places, you know, there was this kind of concept like, okay, Nobody else will do it while the study's being done. But now once it's, you know, what's the role of the center, you know, once the study comes out and uh, one of the main roles is to teach. And so that was kind of after Noel had been doing it for 10 years, that's kind of, I mean, been doing it for his career, I should say, you know, then I came in and kind of worked with Noel. But I mean, we had a ton of teams come in, you know, over you know five or six years to learn how to do it and it's not just the surgery it's the anesthesia and it's the not that the surgery on the fetus it's opening up you know the you know opening up a pregnant uterus taking the rolling the fetus and then putting it back in it's not something that's taught in a standard OBGYN residency right, right? and the anesthesia for that is very challenging and the, you know there's a cardiac team in there that has an echo on the on the fetal heart looking for, you know, abnormalities. And so it's just a, it's just a pretty substantial enterprise. And so that has been a a pretty big part of my career. And we had the opportunity to go to Australia and help them do the very first fetal surgery in that whole part of the world. And it was not just our team doing it, but it was our team kind of, kind of, um, um, enfolding ourselves into their team so that it would be us helping their team do it. And it was an amazing experience. Have they gone on to do those procedures without y'all's help now? Oh yeah. Yep. They've done them. They, they, they're the main center for all of Australasia. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's been, it's been really terrific to see We're we also had the opportunity to go to Toronto, you know, university of Toronto is such an amazing children's hospital, yep. sick kids are, and it, that uh, I kind of call it the flagship of the fleet, you know, for pediatric neurosurgery. And so we, we had the opportunity to go up there and help those guys, you know, those men and women begin their own program. And so, you know, you know what happens though, Lee, I mean, is that, you know, if Kansas city sends you, you know, 10 patients a year uh, to do the surgery on, because you're a center and then Kansas city comes and learns how to do it. Well, then Kansas is going to do their own patient. Right. Or if Toronto sends you 15 a year and you teach them, then, then they're going to do it. And so our, our case numbers have gone down, but, but 
that's what was supposed to happen when the study came out, right? I mean, we still do more than enough to be competent and our team is good and excellent. And we're, you know, we just, to me, it was really important to maintain, even though I wasn't there for that kind of handshake agreement, it was very much implied that this wasn't going to be a situation where only three places were going to be able to do it. You know, we want to be able to teach other centers to do it because it has such a positive impact on the fetus and on the ultimate child that it's, it's, it's just, it's important from a public health standpoint that it's offered to people. And it's more than that. It's the same reason we built brain and spine in North Platte, Nebraska. It's, it's, People do better when they can be cared for close to home and when their families yeah. are around them. And, and it's, it's, it's a brilliant and, and I think honoring of our oath and our profession in general that you're, that you're viewing it that way. It's, it's your numbers are getting smaller, but the overall problem is getting better across the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's been, it's really, it's been an important part of my career for the last few years, for sure. So are you going to keep riding? Are you still riding? Yeah, you know, um, I'm actually really jonesing to ride right now. Um, I, uh, you know, I mean, as you know, you can, um, you can be a neurosurgeon, you can have some administrative responsibilities, and you can write a book. Yep. But it's really hard to be a neurosurgeon, have some administrative responsibility, and want to promote or want to talk about your book, and then also write another book. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so... <laughs> So I've got lots of things that I've started and just gotten down on paper and not edited. You know, they say you can't edit a blank page. Yeah. Very true. Right? <laughs> you can keep trying though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The audio book, you so, did a brilliant uh, job with the audio book, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I almost, uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that. I almost did not do it. Um, and um, Random House sent me a couple of really terrific um audio uh, actors, voice actors. And um, I ended up, um, you know, thinking, well, maybe I'll do this one or I don't know. His voice is not quite Southern enough. What should I do? And and one of my friends here, she said, you got to do it yourself. And so, um, so I thought about it and I thought about it and um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this part. So I'm, I'm good friends with Brad Paisley because he's a terrific yeah. guy. And so I was telling Brad about this and his wife, Kim did a wonderful book. Uh, about her mom's, you know, her, like her mom going through dementia and it's called where the light, the light comes in. Um, And, uh, and it's a tremendous book about their experience as a family. And he goes like, well, Kim did the audio book out here at the studio. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm not, they, they, they asked me if I had any experience. I didn't have any experience. They talk about self editing. He was like, just come out here, come out here on Sunday. I'll show you how to do it. And so I went out there and I put the earphones on for the first time in the studio and there's all these guitars and, and basically he taught me how to, you know, how to self edit, you know, like when you read and you make a mistake, you just go back right to the beginning of the sentence and keep reading and they can edit it out. And I had a couple of exploding peas, you know, you know, and he showed me, he edited it out and cut and pasted it throughout the doc. It was it was great. And so like we sent it off and the next day bring around, I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. We want you to do it. You know? wow. <laughs> I was like, so, I was like, I was coached very well. So did I'm Did you actually record the book at his studio? Just the, just that one chapter. They, um, they had a yeah. studio here that they, um, that they contract with. Um, 
Blackbird Studio. Wow, you did a great job. And it, that's actually really hard to do. I mean, I, I did, I didn't do my first book, and I regretted it. And our our son died when that book was getting ready to be recorded, and I just couldn't do it. And 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 then every time I listened to the audiobook, I was like, he didn't say that right. He didn't pronounce that name right. It drives me crazy. So, yeah. you know, when the second book came, they said, hey, you ought to do it yourself this time, and and, and that's right. It, it, yeah. Your own voice added so much to the story, Jay, and I, and you've got a great radio voice um and you, did, you just did a nice job so friend i can encourage you highly uh to to listen to the audiobook it adds so much life to to jay's stories and and uh, you ought to get it and i'm a person who reads um on paper but i love to listen to so i actually bought both so oh thank you i'm a, I'm a fan <laughs> thank you thank you thank you well I, this is uh this is my shilling for uh traditional medicine organic throat coat tea <laughs> helped me do the audiobook. <laughs> it's a commercial right there with slippery it. elm yeah <laughs> whatever that that's is beautiful it keeps you awake all night I'd... and you can read yeah <laughs> that's right that's right well, listen i promised you 30 to 45 minutes we're right up against it i i just i wanted to take a minute to introduce you to we got listeners in 75 countries and and some of these folks will be blessed by your story. And, and we are going to give away two books, Lee at DrLeeWarren.com, if you want to copy first two that write in with your name and, and mailing address. It's amazing how often I get emails. It's, I'd like a copy. <laughs> where do I send it? Like, I need to know where you are. So thank you, Jay. And keep writing. Thank keep you. doing this amazing transformative work. And and um, I, I appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Love being here, and it's really been great to connect with you again, too, Lisa. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.